I love languages that are super expressive, but one thing that I, I really wind up enjoying is the type checker. Like just getting the compiler to like, be like, no, don't even, don't even bother. You're wrong. You're an idiot. Fix this thing. <laughs> that needs to be our, our show title because I think that that's the first time anybody <laughs> has ever called me a genius. What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Beam Radio. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Beam Radio. Today, we have a very special pre-holiday episode where your fabulous panel of hosts, or at least some of us, are just going to be hanging out and interviewing each other. So you'll get to hear a little bit from each of our hosts talking about what's new in our lives, and uh, we'll round robin some Elixir and Beam questions to dig into. Before we get into that, I would like to welcome each of our hosts. So I'm going to say hello, Bruce. Welcome. Hi, from Chattanooga, Tennessee. We've also got Lars Vickman. Hey, Lars. Hello, hello. And we're also joined by Stephen Nunez. Hello. And you guys know me, I'm Sophie DiBenedetto. Before we move on, I would like to say thank you to our sponsor, Graxio. Bruce, anything new in Graxio? Yeah, this year we're going to be catching up a lot of content. So as, as you've noticed, LiveView and Nerves have had a lot of things happening in, in those sessions. And also the OTP and Elixir sessions, those, those modules have not had some of the things that we're teaching now, like CRC. So we're going to take about half the year and catch things up. But after we catch up the live view module first, we're going to move on to Livebook and we're going to talk about the APIs and actually look at Livebook as if it were a development project on its own and what you can do with it and what to be wary of. And we'll probably spend about two or three months on that project as well. So that's what we have. We have a full 2022, but a lot of it is kind of catching content up so that people who have paid their subscriptions uh, get get continued um, continued support. Very cool. Thank you for sharing that. I, for one, am very excited to see what you and others are going to be doing with Livebook in the coming year. I think I really think the community is just getting started with Livebook, so I will keep my ears and eyes out on Grazio, and I hope our listeners do the same. We also have a question from a listener. We always encourage you guys to submit your questions on Twitter at BeamRadio1, hashtag process mailbox. You can ask us anything. We may even answer it. And we have a question in our process mailbox today that I am going to read out to you guys. So this is a question from Matias Reyes. And Matias says, I have been developing an Elixir for years. I've been reading, watching, and listening to every related content. I think many of us can relate. I think Elixir is way better than other languages, but most devs seem to don't really care or prefer Go or TypeScript or even JavaScript. Am I in an echo chamber? Is Matthias all alone? What do you guys think? So with following all of the Elixir-related content, you might be an, in a bit of a chamber. I'm not sure it's an echo. I just think there's a lot to listen to. Most people around you, if you're dealing with other developers that are not in the Elixir or Erlang OTP ecosystem. Of course, they won't have heard the same things and they may very well be hearing different things from different sources. And I think that's absolutely fine. Thing is, we're not 
the biggest community. We're not the biggest ecosystem. I think we're strong and I think we're growing and I don't particularly care to be as large as, for example, Go or TypeScript, JavaScript, because those are entirely unmanageable beasts of ecosystems. And like uh, you, you can't be a, on a first name basis with almost anyone in those ecosystems. And the churn is uh, ludicrous. But I mean, there's cool software there. And I think people are absolutely fine to to like go. I think there's a lot of sort of philosophical overlap in the pragmatism department with sort of go and elixir and liking liking things that work for a long time, but very different approaches and very different targets, different goals. Uh, now, TypeScript and JavaScript, not my jam, like old school JavaScript, sure, but TypeScript I have not really dug into and I don't think I'd like it. Uh, but there's a lot, a lot of work out there. So of course there's a lot of people talking about it. So I, I did a talk at a symposium called the No Fluff Just Stuff Symposium. And it was a, a big Java-centric or JVM-centric uh, speaking community. And I did this talk with Ted Neward and he had this, this line in the talk that I've since appropriated. And it's one true language to rule them all and in the darkness bind them, right? And talking about Java. And I think that one of the cool things that's happening right now is that we don't have one true language to rule them all because we've kind of entered this golden era where there isn't one dominant language and there's not even one dominant paradigm though things are shifting in the functional direction a little bit more slowly than some of us expected them to so i think that one of the things that's happening is that we're seeing a fairly fragmented programming ecosystem and and the the major players are well there's still a lot of java out there then there are the scripting languages that are dynamic like Python and Ruby. There are the crossover languages. I would put JavaScript in that in that camp. I would probably put probably also put uh, TypeScript in that camp. And then there are functional languages with various degrees of purity and various typing models. So there's a whole lot of headspace out there, and there's a whole lot of division across that headspace. And I also think that there's also division within the Elixir ecosystem. So there's, there's a legitimate reason to code Elixir if you're just building backend web or network services. There's a legitimate ecosystem for backend data processing uh, with, with things like Broadway and um, even telemetry and things like that. There's a legitimate ecosystem in Phoenix for services for web services in, in Phoenix for one-page applications. Also for NURBS with, with embedded devices. So I think that what we're actually seeing is competent large communities, but that are broken down into smaller areas so that, that no one sub-community is, is really a kind of, is, is able to get critical mass if you're measuring against Java but we don't have to today because there are enough open systems, there are enough opportunities for languages to re reach across bounds. And um, so I think that that's what people are seeing. I've also been told that now that Go will have gotten their generics together, 
apparently they will go to hell just like Java. That's that's something a friend told me recently. So I can't speak to it. I haven't done Java and I'm not doing Go. But uh, apparently that's the trend. Uh, I assume he's correct. Yeah, I think a lot about the, um, you know, the developer mind, right? Like a lot of the times we like things that are, easy to acquire or sort of extend out from our current knowledge. So if you think about um, the majority of people, you know, developers coming out now uh, are doing a lot of web work. So what I'll say, considering boot camps and considering just the explosion of developers that we have, the web puts you squarely in JavaScript. So like TypeScript is sort of like an easier extension. It's sort of like JavaScript with a PhD because you've got types and you've got, you know, uh, things that you can kind of like reasonably extend out and get to. Um, I think Go was, took advantage of a moment um, where, you know, they had Google support and then a lot of different projects were able to easy to get started and the compiled binary. Um, Elixir and the Beam have a lot of things going for it, but I don't think it's like an easy reach, right? I can almost see that the, there's maybe like a small, I've noticed a lot of Ruby people come over to Elixir and kind of like start to, reach and it's but even that i think is more of a reach than javascript to say typescript right because we're talking functional programming and processing and concurrency and distribution um so i don't think that matthias's sense that what was what was the phrasing i think elixir is way better than other languages uh it does have a lot of stuff going for it right just even alone with the monitoring and observability and just sort of the, the platform being built for these things it's incredible but I don't think the bridge is there yet to make it so that it's the ob like, well, we can just, instead of doing JavaScript, we'll do this like special version of like Elixir that does all the stuff that JavaScript does, but we can just sprinkle it in or we can, we can easily extend it. Um, so I don't think it's wrong. I, I think it's not necessarily you're in an echo chamber. I think it's just that the inertia towards Elixir is a little harder, Elixir and the beam you know, and all, all sort of like the beautiful things that exist in this ecosystem. It's just a bigger lift. Um, and also to tack on to that, this is something that I think Sophie and I deal with sort of at GitHub is like, okay, let's say we want to bring Elixir in. Well, now we've got to sort of, there are a million questions we have to answer about like, how to, do we get our observability and paging and, you know, all of the things that we already have answered for Ruby and Go we now have to answer those for Elixir. Not that they don't exist, but there's not an, there, it's not an answered path. So I think there's some work that we have to do as a community to sort of like answer these questions and make, find out where the deficiencies are for adoption and even big companies like GitHub. Um, so not an echo chamber. It is very cool. It's just harder to kind of transition to it without it being a radical decision from the beginning. So I love your word, bridge. I think that that's an important one. And we have to remember that Elixir's bridge is a syntactic one, like the adoption of Java from C, right? And, and that syntactic bridge is coming from a niche, right? <laughs> the, the niche is, um, you know, it's from Ruby, <laughs> which is very much a, a strong subset of, of Java. And we're still very early in Ruby adoption experts, and we'll never get them all. It's not, it doesn't solve the same set of problems. So um, I think that what we can say is that Elixir has done very well with, um, with the, the niche that we're, we're focused on. And um, we'll, 
and, and probably less well in carving out new um, area for itself. And that's starting to change with, with things like LiveView and NX and, um, and notebooks, but we're, we're early. Yeah, there's very much, to your point, Stephen, a sense of like, oh, so what's this Elixir thing? Well, here, let me stack a few paradigms to shift right on top of you because it's not just one thing. <laughs> like, oh, but you have these supervision trees and you have this functional programming and you have the actor model and you have and you have and you have. There's a lot there. It's not easy to transmit. I think Bruce can, <laughs> Bruce can probably attest to that there's a few different things you need to shift carefully onto a person to, to have them absorb it. But if you're super curious about all of this stuff, like there's a lot there uh, and it's good stuff. It's just not, as you're saying, there's not a paved path there necessarily. Yeah, I was talking to, to uh, one of the, one of the, the founders of, of the, the closure ecosystem um, yesterday. And we, we were kind of commiserating, if you will, but then we started thinking about the lift that the typical developer has to make to get into Elixir. And it's uh, presuming that you're coming from a, an object-oriented language. And you know, even if you're coming from Ruby, it's the syntax is mostly the same, except your key differences, like that equal sign doesn't mean what you think it does, that, uh, that you have pipes uh, that, that are like object, object and, and method chaining, um, but they don't really do the same thing. You have to decide between pipe and width, depending on what kind of certainty that you have. Then you, have, then you introduce the concurrency paradigm. You introduce um, OTP and kind of that, those, those wrappers, which is um, recursion plus message passing plus processing to do something that you could do with a global variable um, many of the times in in um, in Ruby or um, or other object oriented languages. So yeah, it's a it's a big lift, and it's a big lift regardless because we're introducing um, we're we're essentially I think that this is one of the first times in history that we're not just taking a step forward based on old programming practices, right? We have to step back away from mutability and then go forward again on a whole new foundation. And that's, that is, it's, it's time, it's a whole bunch of literature, it's, it's all of the education infrastructure, it's gonna take time. I think there's a lot to dig into there. And I think some of the questions that we are interested in asking each other will give us an opportunity to chat more about this. But for now, let's set up our round robin interviewing exercise where we will be popcorning questions over to one another about pretty much anything. Um, and hopefully, of course, we'll circle back to Elixir and the Beam. So I am going to, here's what we're going to do. We are going to take turns nominating people to ask questions or pose questions to us. So if I were to go first and if I nominated Steven, Steven would have to ask me a question and then it would be Steven's turn to nominate someone to ask him a question and so on and so on. So let's start with that now and I'll just go all in on my example and I'll nominate Steven to ask me a question. Any question, any question at all. Any question. Moby's favorite bone. No, does he have a favorite rock? No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> How did you know? How did I know? Um, I've, one thing I'm really curious about is, so I know that at, here at GitHub you had about a year working in Go pretty mm -hmm. seriously, day in, day out, channels for days. <laughs> um, 
I'm curious to hear uh, in your mind, what's Go doing right? Um, mm -hmm. Does Go fit better at a large enterprise? Um, and sort of what lessons do you think we can learn as a community, be it the tooling, be it the observability, be it the language that mm -hmm. Elixir and the Beam can learn from Go? Yeah, I love that you've asked me what I like about Go, um, which is such love a specifically. What do you love? About oh, sorry, that. I'm sorry. What I love about it. So yeah, I mean, we use GoLang pretty extensively at GitHub. It's one of what we consider to be our paved paths, which are just like approved languages by the organization that we have all the supported tooling and requirements for, uh, you know, launching applications written in those languages into a production environment. Um, the thing that I do enjoy about Go the most would probably be the static typing. And I think that one of the things that I really enjoyed about that is coming into legacy code bases that I'm not familiar with. Even something as simple as navigating around the code and understanding you know, how functions work, what they expect and what they're gonna return. It's really easy to start taking that for granted. And then when you switch back to something that isn't statically typed where the functions don't declare exactly what they expect, and exactly what they return, um, you you start thinking about how much harder it is to understand the intent of code flow and how something is going to be utilized and how it's going to behave. So that's um, seems like it could be a small thing, right? But I think it's helped make me more productive, especially when onboarding into a new code base. Uh, your question though around like what tooling do I like and what enables us, you know, as an organization to be productive? Frankly, that's a hard one for me to answer because I sort of feel that to my mind, Go's biggest weakness is the lack of tooling geared towards developer productivity. Um, and one of the things that I've been really excited about is, I don't know if anybody's played around with the latest Elixir release, but now we've got 113 out. And there's a huge emphasis in this release on just developer productivity and developer happiness. Everything from like autocomplete, better autocomplete in your IEX sessions to, um, you know, more tooling and conveniences around testing, around code formatting. Um, I sometimes feel because, you know, I'm coming from an object oriented background and because I'm also coming from Elixir where it's really easy to just open up an interactive console and, and start playing around with your code and getting your hands dirty. I often feel like I'm I'm writing Go with like one hand tied behind my back because I find it to be so challenging to write enough code that I can start testing its behavior. Um, you Even something as simple as like, does this function do what I want? Well, what if I tried this? What if I tried that? Let me try this API call. You know, let's say you're building an API client. My go-to process for that is like basically write just enough code <laughs> I wonder why this is on my mind, right? Just enough code to open up an interactive console and then start playing around with different requests, see what you get um, and see how you're going to want to handle the response. And then doing something like that in Go is just not possible. You know, you've got to write your, you've got to spin up your test suite. You've got to figure out what the entry point into your code is going to be and run it more or less as you would in, in production or, or simulating that uh, code flow in order to start testing your, not testing your code, but kind of hammering on your code. And that's something that I have found to be really frustrating. So I'd be curious, like, am I just doing it wrong? And are there better ways to develop Go? Or is this a frustration that others share? So that's what you get when you ask Sophie what she loves about Go. <laughs> I love I'll tell I love. you what I, one little thing, and then- And then the hammer. Better. Yeah. I don't know. Am I wrong? Change my mind. I don't use I mean, Go. You're asking, the, you're asking the wrong people, I think. 
<laughs> we're on a little an, an elixir podcast i don't get why yeah. you work in these other languages it's <laughs> yeah seems uh, like a very silly thing? career move on my from my perspective yeah. on the typing Highly thing upsetting. i haven't i actually haven't had much experience with like type languages aside from like playing around with like crystal lang which is is another language mm -hmm. that i think is i i would love to see get some more traction um i love languages that are super expressive but one thing that i i really wind up enjoying is the type checker like just getting the compiler to like be like no don't even don't even bother you're wrong you're an idiot fix this thing <laughs> and then you right. go back and fix it in like most times once you get the compiler happy it just works which is fantastic um but that said you know who will go all right so now it's my turn i get to to pick someone to ask me a question terrified now uh let's go with bruce Bruce, ask me anything. Steven, 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 Steven. So um, you were into the beer song and actually really diving into the beer song to, to teach people things about a language. And I want to know if, if you have some lessons from your beer song exploration and what that, how that has changed your programming. Yeah, it's a really fun question. So the origin of me working on the beer song was inspired by the book 99 Bottles by Sandy Metz and Katrina Owen. Um, that kind of like teaches, the principle is that kids songs are really good at displaying sort of rules basically, right? Iteration, special cases, and just as using it as a way to really bring out in the case of Ruby, um, the objects and where they exist and sort of like shaking that object tree. So I was, I, I kind of had the idea of like, well, what would this look like in Elixir? I really got into CRC um, and tried to apply the concepts of CRC to this problem. And I went, I went about it probably the worst way, oh, in Elixir, probably the worst way possible in Elixir and that I wound up writing object orientation with extra steps and it was awful. So I send this code to Bruce and I'm like, I'm do, passing in this function and passing in the, the struct itself into the function in it. And it's like, yeah, this is, you've built object orientation in Elixir. You should be ashamed of yourself. Bruce didn't say that. He's too nice, but I saw it in his eyes. No, I said that. Uh, <laughs> um, but it was really eye-opening in the sense of like, well, if you can't do this, if you are focusing on this struct being sort of state and tying itself with its, it, not its mutation, but what will transform it, you do wind up getting this really, uh, you wind up getting some binding. Uh, and it's constraining. Uh, but what we sort of wound up getting to was, and this is the same thing as what Bruce talks about uh, with Jim Gray, to, to focus on that data layer first. And if you really, really focus on the, the data, what is the data, what is the song, what is the verse, separate from how it's used and how it's transformed, everything sort of falls out nicely. You're not focusing on, in the case of object orientation, behavior and state sort of merged. You have the data, you represent it, and then it can be transformed. It can be sent through a series of pipes to be transformed in you know, several steps and then uh, converted back to, to, in the case of a song, that string. Um, so it's really useful to take the roundabout uh, path to get to CRC again, which was again, really focused on that data, get the verse, get the song. Um, and I'll include in the show notes, the code that I wound up with eventually, I'm curious to hear any uh, thoughts from listeners, but 
really, really focusing on the data made it trivial to say, yes, this is a verse struct or this is a, a round struct. But if I pass it into verse, it does this. If I pass it into song, it does this. And it just lets you uh, separate those concerns in a way that I think is a big benefit in Elixir, which is, and most fun and functional languages in general, that your data and your processing of that data are separate. And by them being separate, you can do more with them. They can be expressed in different ways. So I thought that was useful. That was really fun. Um, in general, I think it might be fun to, to go and do more exercises with other kids' songs uh, because they do have those rules that again, 99 bottles has is simple on the surface, but there's pluralization. There's the idea of uh, the iteration counter. How do you represent that? There's the the last verse, which is, you know, starts over where you send someone to the store to get more beer. Um, but I think that if anyone's looking for a good exercise, that's actually a good one. Find a kid's song that you like that has the idea of iteration. And to prove it, Bruce in his infinite wisdom sends back a PR with the, he refactored it in such a way where you could just put any iteration based song and just drop in the struct and it works beautifully. So Bruce is a genius. If you didn't know this. Bruce I don't is, remember that PR at all. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the, that's the beauty of genius, Bruce. He just did it and didn't even think about it. That needs to be our, our show title, because I think that that's the first time anybody <laughs> has ever called me a genius. That's not true. That's not true at all. So I guess I am up. And it's a little sad that I have to tag Lars because Lars is last this time because Lars is the one that I wanted to tag. But now people will think, oh, he had to tag Lars. So Lars. But you tagged Steven, right? Uh, no, uh, Steven tagged me. I tagged Bruce. Yeah, oh. so now I'm tagging you and you have to give me a question. Right, that's how this works. This is a very difficult game. <laughs> so... You've been a little bit harder to reach than usual because you've right. been dealing with a boat. Right. What's up with that? So I gave this talk at Elixir Brazil. It's called The Loop, where I kind of talk a little bit about programming structures and loops. And then I, I related it to this adventure, which my wife and I call high adventure, low risk. And the idea is that you circumnavigate the Eastern United States. And people have done this, this, uh, this small little exercise in, in as, as fast as, as six weeks, I believe. And, as, and people have taken several years to do it also. And what we're going to do is leap out of our dock, just kind of from down the, down the walkway a little bit. And we're going to take a a 29-foot ranger tug, which is like a tiny house on water. We're going to circumnavigate the eastern United States. So we'll take a start in Tennessee, left at Alabama near the Georgia state line, left at the Gulf of Mexico, around the, the tip of Florida. We'll probably visit the Keys. And then as we're crossing the kind of the panhandle to the, the main body of Florida, we'll lose sight of land either in one long overnight hop or three smaller one day hops for the only time during the trip. And the rest of the time we'll be in rivers and within what's called the intercoastal waterway, which is a system of islands that is kind of, kind of surrounds a lot of the United States. And then we'll turn 
left into Chesapeake Bay, we'll come out near Baltimore and then into New York Harbor, where hopefully Stephen and, and Sophie will join for a day or two. And um, then we'll go up through the Erie Canal, probably into Canada. We'll come down this, this canal called the Trent Severn Waterway that has these wild locks where it, there's, there's the only way to describe it is a massive bathtub which you drive your boat into and it detaches and lowers you with all the water down into a, a, a different canal. And then there's another canal where you drive onto the sling and the sling picks you up and puts you on a train and then drives you down, you know, beneath another river. And, and um, so we'll, we'll go down this waterway, then this will drop us into Georgian Bay eventually, then we'll um, attach back to, to the Great Lakes in the United States, come out Chicago, um, then go down the Ohio River and the Mississippi River, that'll dump into the Tennessee River, and then we'll follow that for seven or eight days and we're back home. And the whole trip will take about 10 months. And I will take a follow-up question if you want it. So yeah, uh, that's that's a lot of time on boat. So what's the deal with Groxio during that time? Will you actually be able to to keep teaching, or is this a long, nice break for you? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. We call it a work radical. You know, we made up a word for this purpose because nobody's ever done this before. Right? <laughs> so we're going to be working from the water. It turns out that we'll be traveling about a third of the days, um, which should be should be enough to get us um, to get us all the way around the loop. We will do about somewhere between six and 12 Groxio trainings, um, depending on how many people and, um, and how many, what kind of, what the demand is. It's been pretty high. So probably, um, probably in the upper end of that. We'll also keep producing Groxio um, content because that's something that's really easy to do underway. We'll try to put out somewhere around our average of videos. We, we have the, the recording studio set up and everything, so that'll work on the boat. We have pretty reliable internet while we're in marinas and, and around you know, busy rural areas. We, we will be away from internet for, for some of the time. But yeah, the, the idea is that we'll keep managing Groxio as we go around the loop. And we know how to do it. We've actually done our first training in this way and um, was was one of one of my most successful trainings. So we know we can do it. We've we've we think that we can we can solve that problem. And now let's continue. Let's continue the second loop of, of us. So Lars, you get to tag the next person. You don't have to go in the same order, by the way. Yeah. All right. So I'll tag Steven. All right. So Lars, you've been doing a lot of of live streaming and I've sort of seen it evolve from sort of like going over the language some to actually building projects. I'm curious, what do you find the most enjoyable and where do you see that going in 2022? Yeah, so the, the live streaming is a lot of fun and also, oh, so very sometimes exhausting, especially since I always schedule it for the end of Fridays. <laughs> but that's sort of when it works out. Uh, but after a whole week, it's a good time for blowing off some steam and just sitting up and sitting down and like hacking away at something and having some people watch you and talk to you while you do it. 
but afterwards I'm, I'm done. Then it's weekend time. <laughs> what I would like to do is partly do more sort of polished edited videos. I've put up an example of that. That's very, very basic, but, but also part of something I want to do going forward. But I think I'll definitely keep the live streams because I find sort of reading off of a script or working off of a script where I have a specific thing to communicate and da, 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 is much harder for me than just going off the cuff and just sitting down and hacking on something because I'm, I'm completely unafraid of failing in public in that sense. And the most fun, like going through Elixir school, that wasn't actually live streamed. Uh, it was live recorded, I guess. But I mean, that was, that was fun in the sense I, I brought on a friend uh, to, to have someone to, to actually teach and talk to. But most of the live streams are like hack away at a project or explore some new part of the language or like we did uh, when Phoenix 1.6 went into uh, RC. I pulled that one down and we went through the feature set and some of the changes because that was a lot of good stuff in there. And when the membrane folks uh, just did me a solid and implemented <laughs> live streaming via RTMP so I could use membrane for live streaming, then I did a stream about that. And that's sort of preview stuff where, where it might, might not be ready for prime time but it's it's really fun to try like i recently did a stream of with evision which is a project for using open cv from elixir and i just love picking up like different libraries that i can over time stitch together into wilder and wilder ideas so having a place where where that can go but that doesn't require all the work of sort of sitting down and having a tutorial made and checking that every step works and da, 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 da. I think everyone here knows how much work proper training material and teaching material is to put out. And this much less effort, uh, much less formal, much less checking my work and much more failing in public. <laughs> but I, I rather like it. Uh, the, th the sort of barrier to doing it is fairly low and I get to screw around with sort of production equipment, which I like. <laughs> I love that you have found the value of failure in teaching because I think that too often students kind of see programming as something that experts do the correct time, the first time, every time. And that's a very damaging perception of what our job is all about. Yeah, I was joking I mean, to say that my there would be a an, a less a lecture in class where I would just completely botch it. Just something was wrong, and I think the students liked it for multiple reasons. One, I was human, and then two, because people like to watch people suffer. You know, so it was that. Uh, Lars, I'm curious. Follow up bonus question, bonus round ooh. question. I'm uh, I'm also really invested in this wisps project if you haven't been to lars's website it's really cool to sort of see who's reading the the website now and where their cursor is it's a really fun uh thing to play around with. what's what's going on there what's the future of that so i do have i do have some things planned uh, it will probably land when i make a re bigger revision to the website but i'm considering different ways of adding reactions and sort of interactivity with the wisps beyond moving or about so maybe 
maybe emoji reactions, maybe highlighting pieces of text and giving it the thumbs up, thumbs down, angry, uh, fire, sparkly, whatever. A, a curated set of reactions. I don't want to expose my my audience to each other. Like, not everyone <laughs> is kind. Not everyone is is good on the internet, and I don't want users and logins da 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 da. So. If there's something I learned from sort of games, you have games like Hearthstone where you have a very limited set of reactions you can give your opponent. It's like, good game. Oh, no, that, I didn't expect that. Or it's just these canned responses. And sure, you can use them in a way that ends up being slightly sarcastic. But if slightly sarcastic is all you can achieve, uh, I think the barrier is correctly. <laughs> calibrated now i i do want to make more things with the wisps and i want to there are other things as well i would like to do to the website that sort of contributes to the magic of of weird web stuff uh, so that's i have a bunch of things planned but i also want to build like my entire publishing flow right into my website and that's gonna be more work than i have time for. <laughs> awesome uh okay so i'm i'm up I'm going to pick uh, Sophie. Ask me anything, Sophie. I'm going to regret this. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Um, hmm. So I know that you are interested in maybe spending something up with Livebook around teaching Elixir with Livebook. And I, I know that Bruce, I'm sure, will have some thoughts on this as well. Um, and it's early days, Steve, and I don't think that you've taken steps in this direction yet. But why are you interested in doing that? What is exciting to you about teaching with Livebook? When I think about like teaching an Electra, I always think about like a progression of concepts, right? Like sort of like slowly unfurling the world of, you know, this thing, pattern matching, using structs, why they're different from maps, sort of like unfurling them. And I see that Livebook with its interactivity sort of lets you codify that in a way that's easier to keep up to date and alive. You know, I hate doing videos um, because they fall out of sync like fast you you know this from your from like the book bruce you're feeling this now with sort of groxio right like things just fall out of out of sync really easily the perfect world is like this educational content that you can work through edit and update in git right um that's that's alive gives you the value of of feedback of failure of syntax errors of autocomplete but is still in you know instructive so this progression is really important um I think Livebook can can hit those beats, which is really nice. Um, Livebook can essentially a connection to the Beam runtime, right? So you can start to teach these lessons, these lectures, include visualizations, include videos, and sort of basically have something that you can work through, right? One thing about Elixir School is, which is awesome and we love, is that it's static, right? You've got to copy paste that and get your environment working. Well, now with something like Fly. .io, you can spin up a lesson and start actually working through something, get feedback, get that response, um, you know, submit your code for review to other people. So I think it's a really powerful tool at, you know, allowing you to separate one of those big concepts uh, of learning a programming language, which is just let me play around with it and get a feel for it, right? When you're writing real programs, obviously, you know, mix new dash dash sup and, you know, go to town. But if you want to learn how iteration works or try something out, something more than a REPL, less than an app, like Livebook has a really, really good uh, space to fill at, at 
teaching that progression. Um, I see something else sort of bigger. Like one thing that I use a lot is sort of using an existing concept to teach a new concept to myself. So, you know, you, you learn this concept in Ruby, so you go and learn it in JavaScript or Elixir. Um, there's nothing to say that Livebook cannot run Ruby cells, for instance, right? You open a port to, you know, a Ruby executable, you run code, you get the response back. It might not be as sophisticated at first, but there's nothing that stops you from doing that because again, it's just a connection to the runtime. So I see that there's there's a lot of, of room to do cool things, right? Elixir has one one thirteen, like you mentioned, Sophie, has a bunch of developer happiness tools. One of those things is a formatter. So you could write a Ruby formatter in Elixir and then use that in Livebook to make sure that the syntax is, is highlighted correctly and working well. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's even bigger than just working with Elixir. I think it's, it's teaching programming concepts, it's getting that feedback, it's processing that data. And I think it's pretty dang cool. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that one of the things that's so interesting in it is that it kind of starts to weave together the publishing world and the programming world in a way that is um, symbiotic, if, if, if that makes sense, in a way that it really dramatically reduces the barriers to publishing content that you might find in, in, in a programming book or a piece of programming documentation, or you know, essentially this is publishable, executable content. And we're in the very early stages, especially in the area of security and things like that. But I can, I can really see that this is going to be a, a programming uh, renaissance it's not limited to just Elixir, right? We've seen these things in the data science community, for example, starting with, with Python and then into Julian Net notebooks and things like that. But with Elixir and with LiveView, to me, this, these, these, these paradigms, we're starting to see things stitched together in ways that we didn't anticipate when Elixir was first created. I think that that's an extraordinarily powerful concept so that you could do things like, like spin up 50,000 processes in a live book and kind of watch that with the telemetry and then have a puzzle to say which process is failing. And, and that's those types of exercises, I think, have been closed to us, not from the standpoint that they weren't possible, but that they weren't efficient to build and efficient to maintain, which I think that they can be now. I think that's an excellent. Excellent note to wrap up on, uh, especially because seeing people do more things with Livebook and more education with Livebook is something that I'm really excited to see develop in the new year. Um, and I'd also love to hear from our listeners if people are working with Livebook in particular, if they're teaching, tutoring, mentoring with Livebook, what's working, what's not. Um, I'm sure you'll hear a little bit more about it from, from some of us on this panel in 2022. That is it for our last episode of the year. Uh, a big thank you to all of our listeners who have been with us on this journey. This was our first full year of Beam Radio. I think we've so far put out 23, maybe soon to be 24 episodes uh, in a single year, which is pretty amazing because I think we only got started in like March of 2021. So uh, yeah, it's been amazing working with you all. Thank you, Bruce and Lars and Steven and Alex, who's not here. Uh, and Josh, who was with us in the beginning and then had to peel off to handle, you know, work and other life responsibilities. Really looking forward to keeping this up in the new year. And 
see you guys next time on Beam Radio. And of course, thank you as always to our sponsor, Graphio, which is career fuel for programmers. If you guys haven't checked it out yet, uh, I think your New Year's resolution list could really benefit from the addition of some courses on Graphio. All right. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. This was a good yeah, one. We should do good. freeform ones more often. I would love something like a um, like a show and tell. Speak and tell. <laughs> yeah. 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 So yeah. Tell me about this code. We got deaf module. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Solid start. <laughs>